The Lancet Psychiatry Podcast, bringing you the latest news and views from around the world of mental health. Thanks for joining us. Next week on September 10th, we'll be observing the World Suicide Prevention Day. And in honor of that, today, we're talking about life after suicide. And on the line with us, we have Angela Samada, a mental health advocate, filmmaker, arts professional, and a survivor of bereavement by suicide, uh, having lost her husband, Mark, over 15 years ago. Angela, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, In your BBC documentary, Life After Suicide, it it tells a story of your journey and the journey of others through life after losing a loved one to suicide. And perhaps as a starting point to our discussion, would you mind telling us a bit about who Mark was and, and who you were before before his death sure um mark was a fantastic guy uh we met in school so he was in what we would call the fifth year which is kind of he was 16 when i met him and i was almost 17 and it was really exciting he was somebody who stood out and he was very generous and very funny and when I say generous I mean generous with his time and his humor and um you know he was just very yeah very lovely and we really enjoyed spending time together and you know his friends thought it was great that he'd met a girl that was older than him and my friends were like why are you with a guy that's younger than you so it was kind of yeah everybody was very interested in our relationship and we were together for a long time and and we had two children together um and the first of our children were born when when both of us were were barely 18 um, you know, so so we went through a lot together and we did a lot of learning together. And uh, yeah, he, he was a great guy. And I think one thing that becomes clear in the film and, and in your writing too, is that bereavement, especially bereavement by suicide, is, is a complicated and, and very powerful force. But it's not one that we really discuss that much. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what your insights are in, into that, into bereavement and, and why it's such a it's such a difficult thing to talk about. And and what are some of the things that you've learned both in your personal journey, but also discussing with others that that you've met and and supported and and talked with? I mean, I think when, you know, when Mark died, it was so, it was so unexpected. You know, nobody saw it coming, least of all me. And I suppose my, you know, I was a widow at 32 and I had a three-year-old and a 13-year-old who were looking at me for answers and I didn't have them. And I think that, you know, there were, there were I've, I've looked back at the, at the kind of, you know, the minutes and hours and, and the, the time that passed out after Mark died. And for me, you know, it was literally like navigating your way through a landscape that you've never set foot in before. Only you're the, you're the pack leader, you know, and you've got a tribe of people behind you, your kids, your family, your friends, who are all looking at you to, to, to kind of help them to, to navigate their way through this. And I think for me, you know, the, when I look back, there were some really fundamental things that happened in those minutes and, and, and hours after, after, after I found Mark. Um, that meant that I could do things like the podcast with you today. You know, it, it, I, w- I was taken care of and offered help and support in a way um, by, by the professionals and by the friends and family around me 
that have enabled me to 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 really kind of look back on on what happened and 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 really be able to pinpoint what what those things were that enabled me to go on and and try and and use my lived experience in a in as positive a way as possible um i think the thing that surprised me was that you know when when you're bereaved by suicide it's uh, you definitely see the best and the worst of people. I've, I've seen the best of strangers and I've seen the worst of people that I thought were very close to me. And I think, you know, w- one of the lessons that I've learned is that it's okay to not know what to say. Mm. You know, as, as, as a widow, you know, so young, it was, it was sometimes the people that just didn't cross the road from me, you know, and just said to me, I, I don't want to say to you this, this, this must be a really difficult, you know, unimaginable time. And, and that was always the start of a really good conversation. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I've, I've definitely learned a lot um, going through this. The other thing that I, I know I took note of in, in watching the documentary when, you know, for you, the world has sort of stopped, but for everyone else it, it it keeps moving it's funny you know because there's a there's a certain part of you that wants people to carry on and you want the world to carry on exactly as it was the day before you lost the person to suicide and then because it's such a huge shift for you uh, and you you know in my case my children um you kind of want the world to stop as well and and i remember going through this phase where i would just tell complete strangers and it was like the most bizarre compulsion if you like that i would just tell people at a bus stop when i would tell people in the supermarket and it was almost like i it was almost like i was checking out that it was real you mm. know i was i was always i was almost yeah trying to trying to check out okay so this really has happened and it, and, it, and it was very strange. And I think the, the other thing that surprised me about it as well was that I kept it together, you know, uh, and, and really kept it together. You know, the kids went back to school. I went back to work for a full nine months after Mark died. And I, I suppose a lot of people expect you to, you know, for everything to hit straight away. But actually the numbness of shock and mm. um, it is an amazing anesthetic to pain. Um, so I actually didn't have any contact with my doctor for a full nine months after wow. Mark died. Yeah. Wow. Did you see any he- any mental health services, or did did you mainly rely on on support groups and, and family? And yeah, I, I went to my I went to my doctor because I woke up one day and kind of didn't know which way was up, and I knew that there was something wrong. And I think what it was was it was the shock wearing off, you know, and it was the full technical reality of it kind of really kicking in and I remember my doctor when when I went to her um she didn't give me antidepressants or any any other form of medication because she knew at that point I wasn't depressed and I didn't need medication what I was was heartbroken and I think that she, because she'd been my doctor through both of my pregnancies and she knew me well enough to know that what I needed at that point was to sit in a room of other people who had shared this experience because I ge- genuinely didn't know anyone who had lost their kind of life partner. 
And I certainly didn't know anybody who was bereaved by suicide. So it was actually my doctor that put me in touch with an organisation called Cruise, who then put me in touch with an organisation called the Survivors of Bereavement by Suicide. Um, and to walk into a support group, which I'd never stepped foot in before, you know, I had no idea what to expect. Um, and I tried every uh, trick in the book not to walk into that room. You know, I was, I was kind of trying desperately not to find a parking space. You know, I was trying desperately not to find the address because, you know, there was part of me that kind of didn't want to recognise that I now belong to this club of people that, that, that had been believed by suicide. But actually, again, looking back on my journey, it was stepping foot into that support group that night uh, that kind of made the world of difference to me because I was so busy trying to protect my children and my friends and family from what I was really feeling, which was an, a huge amount of kind of confusion and anger at that point, um, that I, you know, to be able to step in, in, into a room of strangers just with this one common experience, it felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders and I could finally be really honest about, about how I was feeling. And I, I guess that uh, kind of a beautiful segue into, into I think the other key message of a lot of your work is this idea that talking, just talking about suicide is, is critical, that we need to talk about it. But in your documentary becomes clear is that there, there's, there's real fear in talking about suicide. Um, you know, how do you, how do you balance that, sure. that desire to talk about things and make sure you're not hiding it with the fear of, of normalizing or the fear of, of maybe not talking about it in the right way? I, I suppose that, you know, there, there was one major thing that happened to me that made my decision, um, you know, what, the decision about whether to talk about our lived experience publicly. And that was, I was sitting in a conference and I was due to go on stage and the speaker before me put a graph up and the graph um, was uh, illustrating the, the kind of the, the rise in risk level when you have a child that has been bereaved by suicide. And for me, they might as well just have put big pictures of my kids up there, you know, and so it, it made the decision for me that I first of all needed to be honest about my lived experience and secondly I needed to do everything I could to mitigate that risk and you know I, I think that my my decision to talk about it publicly was the thing that tells me that the stigma is still there you know if you ever want to know the level of stigma put the worst time in your life on BBC One because you can you know, you get people who will, you know, get in touch with me on Twitter, for instance, and they will want desperately to be open and honest about their experience. But you will also get people who who really demonstrate that that that, that stigma is definitely there, you know. Um, but I think for me, the response to 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 me being being open about this is um, has been overwhelmingly positive. And I think, you know, for me, it was a personal decision about, okay, I've got two boys now, you know, my boys are 20 and 30 now, they're, they're big six foot men. And I know that in the UK, they are in, you know, the, the kind of high risk category, they're both male, they're both under 50, and they both lost a parent to suicide. So I suppose from my point of view, it was kind of a no brainer, you know, I had to, I suppose I've spent 
you know, the last 17 years since, since, since we lost Mark, trying to put everything that I can as a parent in place to make it so that my children aren't embarrassed uh, or feel the weight of the stigma around the way that their father died. But I'm desperately trying not to normalise it to the point where, okay, so if things are bad enough, this, this is an okay option. Because look at mum, she's absolutely fine now and she dealt with dad's death. So it's okay if, if I think along the same lines too. And I think for any parent, you know, any parent listening to this, any, any, anybody bereaved by suicide listening to this, you feel the weight of that responsibility. You know, you desperately want people to talk openly and honestly, but you don't want to to make this so okay that it's it becomes a, a viable option for everybody. You know, so mm-hmm. for me, it's 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 like walking a tightrope every day, um, and, and it's something that I, you know, every time I agree to talk about this stuff publicly, I am always trying to weigh up that that option. So it doesn't so that fear of talking about it seems it's, it's always there. I think the fear is still there. And, you know, I made a, a decision at that conference that I would come home and tell my kids that they were in a high risk group. And I needed to do that because I needed, you know, for me, it's a bit like breast cancer, for instance, it's almost like, you know, if, if you know that you are in a high risk group and you know that at a certain age you need to start getting checked, then you can, you know, take the, take some control into your own hands and you can look after yourself in a different way, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on your, your, your family uh, circumstances. And I suppose for me, it, it feels a little bit like that with my boys. I almost need to give them the tools to look after themselves in a slightly different way than maybe their, their friends do or, you know, their colleagues do. And, and I suppose, again, I, I'm constantly trying to just put in place what wasn't in place for Mark. Mm-hmm. You know, not, none of us knew how Mark was feeling. Mark didn't tell anybody that, that he was feeling suicidal. And, you know, I, I need the people around my children now to be able to openly say to them, are you feeling suicidal? And know what to do if the answer is yes. So I suppose that's part of the, the message as well. And do you feel that that, that process of, of talking with, with, your, with your family about it has, it, has it made you closer? You know, surprisingly, we don't talk about it a lot. <laughs> and sometimes I think that my kids wish that they had a mum that worked in a florist or a supermarket or a bakery, you know, um, because I think it would would kind of make things a bit easier for them. Um, and, and again, it's something that I wrestle with constantly. You know, am I, you know, people say to me, why do you keep kind of itching the sore kind of thing? You know, why do you mm. keep disturbing it? And it's because I know the power of talking about this stuff and, and the power of it is that people get in touch and say, you know, um, it's the first time that I've felt able to talk about this. It, you know, what language did you use? How can I talk to my kids about this? How can I be open and honest and, and maybe change a little bit of the family dynamic that might have created part of this this situation? So, you know, I think every time I, I speak publicly, publicly, it just tells me that I'm doing the right thing. But I do, yeah, I do worry about about, about that balance. Okay. Um, so before we end the podcast, uh, are there any other messages that you want to leave with our listeners? Sure. I mean, I think that, uh, again, one, one of the big things that I've learned on my journey is that, you know, if your kids are asking you or the children around you are asking you questions, it's because they're ready to hear answers. Mm. Um, and that was a piece of advice that I was given really on 
early on in a support group when my I wasn't really sure how to talk to my children about the way that their dad had died and I certainly didn't want to lie to them but I needed almost like I needed the confidence of other people telling me that this is what they'd done and it had been okay um, and what it's meant is that if either one of my boys and they both had tricky times in in, in their life but but at, at each kind of corner they've they've come home or they've phoned me or they've you know re- reached out for, for help and and I suppose that tells me that um the care that we were given really early on meant that it cemented our relationship it didn't fragment our, our relationship um I think there's a few things that you know are coming up on the horizon that are going to make a big difference to bereaved people um first of all we we have SOBS as an organization the survivors of bereavement by suicide and you know, there's 60 support groups in the UK and there's there's a helpline and, and people can access that for free and there's no waiting lists. Um, and I think the other big thing that's happening um, in the UK uh, later this year is that um, Suicide Bereavement UK are going to release the findings of the biggest um, survey of people bereaved by suicide. And I think they spoke to something like 7,000 people bereaved by suicide. Um, and the findings of that report are going to really be released later this year. Um, and I think that that will really encourage, um, you know, kind of professionals working with people bereaved by suicide to really incorporate lived experience, you know, positive lived experience negative lived experience it will really encourage them to to put that at the heart of their kind of service design and and their service delivery um so there's a couple of really big things happening in the uk later this year which um, i i think will kind of yeah give give people a platform to to use their voice fantastic um angela thanks very much for taking time to talk with us today we really appreciate it thank you so much for having me That's it for this episode. From the entire editorial team at the Lancet Psychiatry, thanks for listening. Be well and stay safe.